You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Well, thanks for um, returning. I hope everybody bought their books because the bookstore, uh, they packed up the books and take them off to the remainder. Oh, my God. And they make them into pizza boxes out here. Um, so I'm not going to uh, rant and rave. We, uh, we want to have not really a panel discussion, but more of a, a discussion with you guys in which we say really deep things and you guys can say like anything at all. Um, um, it seemed to me like there was a, co- the main theme tonight was like the, the, these ideational conflicts between pulp and the academy or between, uh, you know, Thoreau and um, Emerson or between the, the disappeared and the, and uh, the people that are trying to heal it, or in, and of course in Cecilia's case, it was a violent conflict. It always is in her work. Uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, maybe we can start with. Uh, I just I would like to start by asking the authors to maybe say a word or two, and starting with Stan because Stan, you never exactly. Uh, even though that was great stuff, that could have been from a lot of different books. And it seemed to me that uh, it sort of didn't really address what that, uh, seriously, what that trilogy is all about. Stan got this thing in Time Magazine as one of the eco-heroes, like a Al Gore of SF. <laughs> and, um, and, but the, it didn't mention these books, which are really... Uh, really the first dramatization of what uh, the global warming stuff is all about. I mean, say a word or two about that series, because it's, uh, <coughs> it, it's, you're finished with it now, but yeah, it's important. Yeah. Well, it was uh, an attempt to do science fiction as realism uh, and just talk about the very near future and the uh, inevitability of climate change. And now science fiction that doesn't um, deal with climate change in the next Hundred years or two hundred years uh, is uh, is fantasy, and isn't dealing with the real world. And and this is the perpetual problem with science fiction: Are you making up futures out of your own moment and what we know now, or are you making up futures out of the 1930s or the 1920s? And those science fictions that work out of an older beginning moment are a kind of a retro uh, art thing that people are doing to be camp or to be fun or to make some kind of artistic point, but they aren't doing science fiction in the sense that I think of it, where you start from now and what we know now, and what we know now says uh, climate change in the next 100 or 200 years. So you could write science fiction that's set 5 million years in the future on the other side of the galaxy, and that is a great uh, playground, that is a great story space, and it, uh, and it remains a place that science fiction can do good work. But near future science fiction has always been important so that you've got a continuous history, a future history that has been built out of the communal mind of science fiction, and it is a community. And that community builds a, from the moment that you're at out into the future as a, you know, different kinds of futures, but basically the good one and the bad one uh, as a, a broad spread of like uh, weather simulations or, or um, you know, um, predictions. 
And if you're missing the gap between your moment and the, the 100 years in the future and you just don't want to play that game anymore or you're ignoring the fact of climate change, then all of science fiction to me gets to become a, a house of cards where one of the cards at the bottom has been pulled away. Hmm. It might all fall and it might all just become fantasy. And, and we see so much fantasy anyway that it would be sad to lose science fiction. So I wanted to do near future. And so I wanted to do climate change. And I had spent some time at National Science Foundation. I had lived some years in Washington, D.C., and I wanted to get the knives in. Hated living there. And um, so I started the book with some revenge motivation, although I got fonder of the city writing the book than I was when I lived there. Um, And maybe that happens all the time. So it was a climate book, but when you've got a really, really long book, uh, three volumes, almost 2,000 pages in paperback, then you've got time to do the minor characters and um, you've got time to uh, expand a little. And so that's what those passages that I read were, were basically uh, friends of the main character. Um, And they were interests of mine and and anything I was interested in in the last uh, seven or eight years got into those books. (laughs) Right down to uh, one night I was out playing softball. I I made a bad mistake. I I caught a softball with my nose. And so um, then suddenly the next week my character Frank, it seemed to make sense that he got hit in the nose with a two-by-four in a fight out in Rock Creek Park. I thought, let's go with it. I mean, it, this, this injury isn't worth anything unless I can put it to use. So it was like that. Cool. Well, Barry, your work didn't seem to have nearly the level of seriousness. Oh. <laughs> That's your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I'm supposed to talk to the point of near futures and no. far futures? You're just supposed to say something deep and interesting. Deep and interesting. Yeah. About what? My own work or something? Just deep will do. Uh, John Updike said something deep when he reviewed David Hartwell's first big anthology in the New Yorker in 1982, that science fiction was intrinsically, to him, Updike, always a second-rate medium. You could never, science fiction could never be great because it, it was at two removes from reality. You had reality and then you had fiction which dealt with convolutions and variations of, of, of imagination of reality. And then you had science fiction, which was uh, based upon an, a non-existent reality, as it were. It, it, it could never, the very nature of the form made it impossible for it to be first-rate literature, because it would always be in a distance. Uh, that struck me as sensible. It, it isn't, it, it's <laughs> one of those comments, I mean, peop, most science fiction people hate it, <laughs> and, 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 and grumble that Updike is just as failed and as disappointed would-be SF writer. And indeed, <laughs> indeed there are some attempts of, uh, of Updike to write science fiction, which aren't, which aren't very good. But I, I, the, the point struck me as valid. Is, is science fiction, must it, because of its very nature, be a second-rate fiction, the form of literature. I I spent, in my working years, I spent decades fighting that and and arguing with every line of fiction I typed against it. But I I take the point. (laughs) 
But what about what about youth? <laughs> I mean, okay. wouldn't, wouldn't you, you judging from what you, I mean, what you read was excellent, excellent. But but as my as my mother would say, it was excellent. It wasn't science fiction. Maybe that's why it was excellent. No, no, it was. There is no. There's a science fictional attack in what I heard you read, but it certainly isn't science fiction. Those passages were not, although they, since they came in a science fiction novel, I guess you could define it as such just because of the context. But I think Updike was wrong because there is no first and second degree. It's all language. There is no, there is no realism. And those, those novels that pretend to be about, um, you know, um, Napoleon's invasion of Russia or the like are still uh, linguistic constructs in which uh, we don't have the reference, and uh, we're not out there in Russia ourselves. We can't make the comparison. They're imaginary constructs. And if you make an attack, if you say that the best literature is always realism, first of all, the, the closer you look at realism, the less it's there. <laughs> Secondly, you can always um, so slightly sidestep from science fiction per se, and you can uh, give them uh, Garcia Marquez, and you can say, well, what about 100 Years of Solitude? That kicks ass on any realist novel ever written, and it's a magical realism. It's a fantasy novel. It's a kind of a, uh, a dream of all of Latin American history. It's a historical <coughs> novel, and science fiction is a historical literature. And so at that point, you've got, you, you've got your defense set up, and it's a little bit of a complicated defense. It's not – I mean what he said is kind of like common sense. Well, you can either write about reality or you can't. But on the other hand, the harder you press it, and there are people pressing it from everywhere, the better you can make a, a defense of what science fiction does. And I, my constant defense has been we live in a science fiction novel, and John Updike does too. And it's called America, 2008. It is a science fiction novel. So how else are you going to be realistic except by writing science fiction? And you need to actually lead ahead of your time. If I write a book about, you know, the election that comes after an idiot president, which I did in this trilogy, it's actually historical fiction like about six months from now. So you need to actually get a lead time on our moment that is pretty considerable in order to express the now in any kind of lasting way. Let me intervene. Um, I wish Jeff Ramon were here because I think we're talking about mundane SF in a way. <laughs> yeah. But he'll be here next week. In just a second, Jeremy, because I want to ask uh, Cecilia, what was the flash? Is this a fantasy element? Or was he throwing kerosene? No, he threw holy water on it. Holy water doesn't flash, it's just no, water. No, but if you've if you just buried the Queen of Norway and she's a hawk and she's a witch woman, she's just looking for a chance to get away anyway. She's going to make a great escape. So is this a fantasy it element? It is a fantasy it, element. It, it every, is. I, I tend to agree with, with Stan and actually with Barry too that, that all, all fiction is uh, intrinsically unrealistic and uh, intrinsically imaginative and by being imaginative it means that it goes past that edge that where you can actually prove something and uh, you want to create a world in which uh, your world operates but in a larger frame and uh, you can you can do that with a realistic novel but it's much harder and much more boring I think realism is really boring I think uh, really um, 
to, to make something work in, a, in fiction, you have to push it out past where you think you can go and then keep pushing it. Jeremy, you were wanting to weigh in. Well, the, the update quote reminded me of a previous FS, SF and SF where um, when Palo Bajaglupi was here and the, the complaint was leveled because there was a more realist writer with him and Paolo Who was that? I forgot. Um, I'm totally forgetting his name, but it was like, well, I totally connected with that, but you're writing some kind of thing that I didn't connect with personally and his was more realistic. And it was really ironic because Paolo had made the same, um, uh, had the problem with science fiction of it's a remove. In the drive over here, he, he was talking about if you're going to write a novel about racism, writing a novel and metaphor in science fiction about racism is inherently a move and a remove and it soft sells it and it's not as immediate and doesn't have the kind of impact. And so Powell was sympathetic to that Updike quote right up until the other person in the audience pointed at Paolo's work and was like, but I, I don't understand your stuff. That's just weird science fiction. Well, just for the for people who don't know, Paolo read a story about people that eat rocks. <laughs> he did. Yeah, yeah. He did. But his aesthetic is very much trying to bridge that gap and be not as in metaphor, but tell a human condition story. And so he was sympathetic to the kind of updike view of science fiction, and yet it was still leveled at him. Updike, there's a couple things that's right. A lot of science fiction has been bad. And a lot of the times it has to do with imagining a future that we haven't yet lived in. If you do historical fiction, you know that there was a past that you can read about. You know there was some society somewhat like it. But the future is always speculative and non-existent. So it, it has this somewhat uh, cardboard set And that's why most, not most, sorry about that, so much of science fiction, 50s science fiction, looks ridiculous today. Yeah. Yesterday's tomorrows uh, are uh, the 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 Cornbluth pole novels, Space Merchants, uh, mm -hmm. Gladiator at Law, were satirical masterpieces of projection in 1954, that that can barely be read today. It didn't work out that way. Mm -hmm. They, I think, they need to be uh, complete mm. works of art in and of themselves. Yes. And so they have to have characterization. They have to, you have to work extra hard on settings because the settings being imaginary, you need to uh, create the illusion that they're solider than rocks. This is why people complain about 25 pages in my work at a time on the rocks of Mars. Well, I wanted you to know they were there and they were real. And so it, it, takes, it takes some sentences. You know, it takes some, some work on that level. Uh, so, I mean, eventually um, uh, it, it keeps coming back, and, and Updike is right about this. It'll get judged as a work of art, and its ability as, uh, as a, a prediction of the future or as satire of a current moment, like Space Merchants, those were great books in, in a particular narrow way. But ultimately, if you judge them as a work of art, then you have to have um, characters that you care about, you have to have beautiful language, you have to have surprise, you have to have the kind of things that that all novels need. But Updike's argument, I think, goes beyond that. It's not, the, the problem with, with space merchants and Gladiator's Law is not that, that they aren't beautifully written. They are, they are qu quite well written. I mean, these, these guys could write the, the issue, the, the problem is that it never happened and it's never going to happen mm -hmm. and it never could have happened. That, that from the very beginning, these, these books were in some fundamental way distanced. 
Now, this well, is now, his argument, not yeah. mine. And I said I'm sympathetic toward it. I wonder, but, I, but how do you make a distinction between those and, like, say, 1984? In, in, in a way, you say in, in both cases, well, they did kind of come true, <laughs> and yet the details are wrong. The characters in 1984 are non-existent. They don't matter as such. The language is straightforward and probably not as skillful as Pohl's language. And yet um, 1984 serves as something that, you know, it's on the list of the 100 best novels of the 20th century. See, I, don't, I can say The Demolished Man, which is yeah. contemporaneous with the old Pohl Kornbluth novels. I don't have that problem at all mm-hmm. with the Bester, which, which is superbly written and self-aware in a way that, that the Bester Kornbluth is not. Hmm. Well, but this... Hmm. this Bester had something entirely different in mind. This point of uh, when Updike dismisses a whole genre, <coughs> uh, I insist that he's wrong. That a genre has the possibility. I mean, there are the tango, for instance, to use my own example, is a very stupid little genre. But but Piazzolla was a genius, and he simply blew it up. And now you listen to him, and you can't go back. You go back to Gardel, for instance, and give it a try. It doesn't work. But because of Piazzolla, the tango is uh, is transformed into into you know, world art forever. Well, that's been done for science fiction over and over again, I think. Um, by, the, by the generation of the 60s, by Le Guin and Lamb and Dish and, and Delaney and um, Gene Wolfe, and, and that, that generation of the 60s, Joanna Russ, that work is, that, those, anybody could read those at any time. And they would, I think, be lasting works of art. Let me hear from Ellen who's also a science fiction writer, who's going to be reading here next month, along with Jeff Raman, who's the king of mundanity. And, and really, really tall. Um, I'm just wondering if John Updike is living in the past. I mean, obviously he said that in 1982. Absolutely, he lives in Pennsylvania. Well, yeah. And, uh, he said that in 1982, and we are now living in the future, which he didn't predict. And one of the things that he didn't predict is that Doris Lessing won the Nobel Prize last year and talked about the fact that she was a science fiction writer in accepting the Nobel Prize. Did she? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and as opposed to Margaret Atwood, who was fighting it for a long time and finally came over to the dark side. <laughs> and Michael Chabon, um, this year, won the Hugo and the Nebula for Best Novel, has previously won the Pulitzer Prize, and in accepting both the Hugo and the Nebula, talked about how proud he was to be a science fiction writer and to bring his Pulitzer Prize winningness to bring legitimacy into the art form that he loved. So in 2008, oh, you roll your eyes if you want to, but still, you've got, you've got, a, you've got a Pulitzer Prize winner and a Nobel Prize winner who are both saying, fuck it, I'm a science fiction writer and I'm proud, so John Updike is, is predicting the wrong future. John Updike is Please. irrelevant. Well, Ellen's talking about what's happened to writers and prestige, but what I want to talk about is the way Updike's fiction is distanced. If you're not a middle-class white man from Pennsylvania, you are automatically distanced by Updike's fiction the same way he claims he is automatically distanced by anything that is science fiction. Let me add, I am not only a white class middle, uh, uh, middle <laughs> white man, this is my third one, white, uh, middle class white man from Pennsylvania, I actually graduated from the same high school as Updike, uh, oh. if you're familiar with his writing from Ollinger, right. um, however, I, I wonder if you're talking about toward the end of time, 
that that particular mm -hmm. updike science fiction yeah. experiment because yeah. it was not not good. <laughs> so it, some people can't write science fiction. Exactly. So if he's if he's trying to dismiss a whole genre, well, John, then then let's see let's see your efforts. I mean, to to me, that's the that's the best experiment is is to see what he can do with it. And he was unable to really. So it's sour grapes from a failed science fiction writer? Is that yeah. I don't think Maybe so. Maybe I would go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I mean, I, I tend to agree with that. The, to me, the Updike, Updike is not a good entry into this discussion yeah. <laughs> because it's on, to me it's on a very low level. I think really he dismissed it because it was genre. And I think he would have dismissed any genre in the same way, only with different language and different things about it you know so I don't I don't really think that's to me the uh, the more interesting question is is how is how science uh, you know how do you construct a science fiction world that's as real to the reader as uh, say the world of Pennsylvania the world of this and that and the other which is the as Stan I agree with Stan that's what you have to do and that's sort of uh, that to me, is the connection between science fiction and historical fiction. You're putting people in a world they're not familiar with. You know, like you say, of of if you're not a middle class white guy, middle class white guy doesn't know a whole lot about the coast of Normandy in the year 1000. You know, so you have to. You know, it seems like that's the that's the real task. It's not. Song, but, huh? How do you capture the mindset of the someone else's? mindset of, oh, I, I, of a different period. Well, the trouble is that people think of history as cut and dried, and it isn't. And Pache Faulkner, the past isn't only gone, we can never recover it. Uh, all we have left are a couple of bones and a few teeth, and you know what people can make out of those. Faulkner uh, did not say that, Sissy. I'm sorry. I, 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 I don't want to make it be difficult here, but Faulkner's famous quote is, the, yeah. past, the past isn't even past. Yeah. No. Yeah. But Cecilia is saying the opposite. I'm saying the opposite. It's yeah. gone, yes. baby, gone. It's gone. We know more. We knew more about the Kennedy assassination the day it happened than we do now. <laughs> and we will never know. Hmm. any more than we do now, in fact, less and less and less as it goes, retreats into the past from us. Hmm. And the past is uh, an absolute conundrum. Uh, you can read, uh, I love to read uh, primary sources, the Eddas and the Sagas and people's diaries and stuff like that. And uh, that's, that's you can still only grasp parts of it. You have to sort of imaginatively create not what you think, because you can't ever really say this is what really happened, but this is what might have happened. This is what makes sense out of what the bones and the teeth say. Uh, but it, you never really know, and yet if you really do it right, or I don't, I don't know, if you really do it well, uh, people believe it. And uh, if you've done it well also, they believe it because it's true to them. It's true to 2008 as much as it's true then, uh, or, but, or if it was true then. But, but you never can. And uh, the, the, you talk about his, uh, science fiction as a, a genre which has been uh, uh, very much uh, abused. And historical fiction has been debased to the point of, you know, the ridiculous. And now, uh, why do you say that? people you believe that history is something which is history, that history is the past. But it isn't the past. 
History is what we think about the past. And that changes generation to generation. So it's always new. And it's always different. And we always think that the other people got it wrong. So you're saying your historical novels are no more realistic than a science fiction novel? I don't think so, no. Yeah. I, I want them to be, I want them to be inhabitable. I want people to be able to read them and to go into those worlds and to live there. Therefore, you have to give them a world where they can move around, where they can uh, not necessarily recognize things, but where they can feel like they're, uh, that they understand things. But I don't think you ever can recover the past. But you do a thing that happens so often when I'm reading your work, where I'm inside the character's mind in a kind of free and direct style where their thinking seems to come out of a past culture, out of a, a structure of feeling, uh, uh, Raymond Williams would call it. And it, seem, and it strikes me like a, like, like a good alien in a science fiction novel would strike me if I ever ran into one, which right. I don't. But these are aliens. Their thinking is different. Do yeah, you, do they're you, aliens. They do you notice this when you're researching or when you're uh, writing as something that you try? Um, I don't know how to answer that question. Uh, I try to have characters who could, or I try to have characters who uh, could be the kind of people who are in the, the primary sources that I read. Um, in the Eddas in the, in the, and the sagas, the great Viking stories, um, these guys, you know, hack and hew. They, they kill people and they're glad. They're, in, in the modern world, you know, if we killed somebody, we'd feel terrible about it. But these people are, you know, hoisting heads above their heads and, you know, throwing babies up and spitting them on swords. And, and uh, uh, somehow they saw this as a viable life. Now, how could they have done that? Their, their values must be different. And so you try to imagine what their values could have been that they were willing to, ex to do this kind of thing. And when you do that, you shed yourself somehow. And... Um, when, when, I'm, when a book is working for me, um, the book is much more real than the world around me. And um, it tells me the story. I don't tell it. I'm often terrified by what it wants me to do <laughs> and uh, can only force myself to do it because uh, I've got some kind of data that actually said this, this did happen and therefore I have to deal with it. Um, and often when I do that, I discover something about that I didn't expect, and that it has the story has revealed to me. I don't really think I'm making these things up out of my head. I think I find them, and I think they tell them to me. And mm. I think they only tell themselves to me after I've gone and beaten my head against a wall and gotten all bloody and gotten real depressed and very, very unhappy and miserable and tried every possible way that couldn't work. <laughs> and then the story will open and tell me what it wants to tell me. But it's just, it's an agony. As I was telling Barry at dinner, the only thing worse than writing is not writing. <laughs> Speak well, for yourself. <laughs> I am, Barry. <laughs> well, this, I mean, I agree with Stan. It's like, the, I think of in Jerusalem, your book, the, the I've forgotten the guy's name, but the Templar. Ronald, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was stranger than any alien, you know, uh, but I could completely understand who this guy was, but it was nobody that I had. Well, well you know, it, it really you know where I got way. the idea for that book? No. I was, I had, I was thinking I would have to write, I uh, wanted to write a book. I couldn't sell anything. It was a bad, a really bad time. I had just written an article for the 
magazine that publishes my military history articles about the Templars. I thought, well, I'll write a book about the Templars. And then I'm thinking about the Templars, and I'm thinking, because one of their big features was suicide charges. You know, they, 200 of them would attack 14,000 Saracens. And I'm thinking, how could they do this? Why would they do this? What would drive them to do this? And I thought about the Marines in Lebanon and the suicide bombers in Lebanon. And I thought, that's the same damn guys. <laughs> it's the same guys, you know? And so I started writing the book and I got 500 pages into it and threw it out and st st sat at the window and drank coffee and ate cookies for three days. And then the book began to reveal itself to me. But what it is about him is he's a man who's desperately trying to get himself straight with God before he has to face him. And he's not a good guy, he's a bad guy. Uh, he, he's ambitious, he's brutal, he's cruel, but he's, he's really, he knows what he's supposed to be and he's trying hard to get there. And that's what, that's where the character gets his power. Cool. But he, he is not a, uh, he's not a modern man, I mean. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of, a lot of the weaker science fiction is where you're off in the, at the other side of the galaxy fighting the aliens and the people that are there are exactly like us. You're you right. know, they, yeah. no. And the they, aliens too. Yeah, the, yeah, the aliens too. But that's what I mean about the past being past, you know. I mean. Yeah. Sharing. You kind of directed you, Stan. You're you're famous for your Three Californias trilogy, where you kind of, you know, did a dystopia, uh, post-apocalyptic, and a utopian version with a that shared the same setting. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering how you saw your most recent trilogy in terms of those science fiction archetypes. Is it a dystopia, utopia? How does that fit? This is a mixed form. Uh, uh, I've called it a utopian black comedy um, or a domestic comedy about uh, global catastrophe. Um, in essence, I wanted to do n near future science fiction that was so near that you couldn't separate out these science fiction subgenres that are so powerful and useful. But when in the in in the moment, if you bring it back down into the next five years, you could say that all three are happening at once, and I think that's quite true. I think we have choices to make in the next few years that will lead to utopia, dystopia, or post-apocalypse. The three that seemed obvious to me back when I was doing the Orange County books. So, so the new one is just a single novel, also. Whereas the Orange County books were three different books, and and really almost the only original idea I've ever had, and particularly in terms of structure. The, the when I remember when this occurred to me that the same character would go through three different futures, and then he would be named the same, so that you could see how much we're overdetermined by history itself. That we don't get to choose our lives. That we are in a in a in a transaction with history and so depending on what history does we get to be one thing or another so my old man the character Tom Barnard has three radically different lives in the three books and it's you know this is the kind of good idea you have when you're 20 that at age 57 you know it just doesn't seem to happen as often uh, it's, yeah. it's like mathematics or music you know it's and in the utopia he drowns Yes, that's right. He does, but <laughs> but they managed to use his death to save the hilltop that was endangered by developers, and so it's a happy death and a utopian death. Well, let me ask a question of Barry. Uh, 
the <laughs> one of the seems to me one of the theses that you have fought for in your critical writing is that science fiction does actually have a golden age, and it's not as Hartwell or somebody said the age of twelve. Uh, that it actually is a literary golden age, and, and it is the fifties. And I'm thinking of that body of work, and we now a lot of times we divide between utopias and dystopias. And does that does that division work in that uh, period of science fiction that you have uh, written about and thought about so much? Work in what way? Does it apply? Uh, are there for are, me? I mean, but <coughs> no, no, no. For the work, <coughs> do we have a, a dystopia uh, in the sense that um, 1984, a, a deliberate dystopia, say in 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 the 50s, uh, where it's where that's the aim of the author, or a deliberate utopia, or was that ever the agenda? I don't. I the the agenda was to build in the 50s was to build science fiction into a sophisticated, powerful literary medium which would provide honor and riches to its practitioners. That, uh, that, was, that was the agenda. Mm -hmm. And these people in the 50s, peace were felt, many of them, that piece by piece and inch by inch, they were in, in a process of true progression toward that goal. They found out otherwise. The 50s, as I wrote in an, in an essay a long time ago, the 50s ended dismally for most science fiction writers. There's no nicer way of putting it. It, it. They ended dismally for many reasons, but they definitely ended. To me, the 50s was was a, a, a peak for science fiction, but this could just be a chronological, the chronological, uh, chronologically determined observation of a 69-year-old man who's read his first science fiction magazine in 1951 and was framed by the 50s. So uh, I, this, there may be no objectivity to this. Nonetheless, I think that the 50s in many ways were felt powerfully different to the practitioners of science fiction than, than this era does. I see it looking from uh, a couple of decades later very clearly that uh, the science fiction was a classic ghetto culture it was within its own ghetto the, and from the outside it was despised in the from the inside a very intense intellectual life that was uh, mm -hmm. but it was esoteric and, and <coughs> involved with itself and that the generation of the 50s did indeed uh, crash and burn because they were using their foreheads to break down the brick wall of the ghetto. And so we have Pangborn and Miller and Bester and Damon Knight and the list goes on and on. And the great writers of the 50s, that, their careers are all broken, all except for uh, Philip K. Dick who had hypergraphia. And so he just kept on cranking on out of a mental condition that was different. But they all, <laughs> what happened was they, they did break down the brick wall. That was the interesting thing, was that the generation of the 60s could then stagger through that hole in the brick wall and, and you know, stoned and immaculate, like Jim Morrison says. And you get the great masterpieces out of science fiction out of the ones right after. Le Guin, Zelazny, Delaney, uh, Aldous, Malzberg, Dish. Um, <laughs> it goes on with that crowd. 
And so the 50s generation, I, I revered them and honored them. And their books are often very good. You get individual good books that kind of struggle out, like Venus Plus X by Sturgeon. Um, yeah, or, um, or one of Damon Knight's A for Anything. Yes. You get these beautiful books, but their careers were shattered by the difficulty. A canticle for Leibowitz. And so this is what science fiction does that other genres don't do. We remember. We see the history. We have our own internal canon. And those guys won't go away. They will, they'll be remembered as such. But that was a tough time. I mean, Philip Dick, he may have continued to write, but he also went crazy. And he talked about eating dog food and being despised. He felt the, the putting down of science fiction as much as any of them did. Did you feel that in the 60s, that you were walking through the through the ruins into a, a, an open space, that a space had been opened? I felt I could write anything I wanted to write and get it published if I was good enough. I, I did not have a sense of limits. That did not last long. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Call that 1969 to 1974. And as I say, I woke up Two months after, one month after Nixon gave it up, which was August 9th, 1974, I woke up a month later like Delmore Schwartz's protagonist uh, in Dreams Begin Responsibilities with uh, trembling on the lip of my, uh, the cusp of my 35th birthday. And I, I was wiped out. I had no career. It was all over. And I kind of knew it. I kind of knew it. it it went that quickly. It, it went almost overnight. Nixon quit, and the counter revolution began. And suddenly, and 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 Star Wars loomed, and Star Trek conventions had begun, and it was all over. But there was five years between '69 and '74. I felt I could do any goddamn thing I wanted to do, and and get it done to the limit of my ability, whatever that was, and sell it. And maybe if I did it enough. I, I would break through to critical recognition, larger critical recognition. New York Times, uh, New York Times, New York Review of Books, Hudson Review kind of recognition. I was wrong. I was wrong. But it was, it was, it was a nice five years. Or, or as Carter Schultz, uh, Schultz wrote uh, not so many years later, I, I believed in the truth and power of science fiction in my own glowing future. I think uh, I had it, I think it was at 11 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> was it, was it a, a change in the marketplace or a victim of its own success? I, I tried to analyze this in Engines of the Night. I wrote an essay about, about because I called the John B. Mitchell Spiral Agnew Blues. It, the, it, the space, the, the force of the counter-revolution is what it was. So, all right, you goddamn filthy kids, you got rid of Nixon and you ended the Vietnam War, but that's the last tantrum we're ever going to let you get away with in this house. You're done. And, so, and Del Rey, Lester Del Rey was the new book reviewer at Analog. And, and sales for, uh, for so-called literary fiction were, were plunging. And, they were, and uh, there was just a kind of revulsion, a, su a sudden revulsion for it. it I don't want to generalize. I mean, The Dispossessed by Le Guin was a major novel and had a major success in the year 1974. It wasn't quite that simple. But there was a, a sense, there was a real sense of shifting. Why do you think Silverberg got out 
1976, so suddenly. And he never wrote that kind of work again, not at novel length. He never wrote a novel like Stochastic Man or Shadrach in the Furnace again. He went to the castle. He went to Lord Valentine's castle. He did some ambitious and very good novellas and short stories. But he, as far as literary, ambitious SF novels, he, he Silverberg, the bellwether, who was showing us all where and how to go, he got out as quickly as he could. He quit cold for two years, and he came back as an entirely different kind of writer. Ellen. I, Barry, I was, I, was, I was listening to you talking about the 50s and the shift to the 60s, and I kept thinking about the civil rights movement and how people were breaking boundaries, breaking walls with their foreheads. Um, in a political sense and in a racial sense and in a, a, a civil rights sense and then the 60s happened and everything shifted. Is, is that a valid comparison or is it just me? Well, it shifted. It got, it got good in the 60s. I mean, in the good in quotes, but they were, there was Johnson and the Civil Rights but those Act. And, and shifted yeah. in, in a way that some people thought was good and some people didn't. Yeah, there are there are some there are some similarities, except that the changes in civil rights were lasting. With all the the, the terrible issues we've had, they, these were lasting changes, as we can see. I don't think there was any su such change in science fiction. Well, okay, and, and then I'll ask you. I mean, forty forty to fifty years later. We're two weeks away from an election in which a black man is running for president, which is certainly a shift from the 50s. I said, yes. And don't you think that there is a similar shift in speculative literature? In what way? Between the last 50 years, that there's a whole lot of things that are accepted by the mainstream now that weren't accepted in the 50s? Terms of I can only answer you very, I can answer you narcissistically and selfishly and, uh, uh, and in an arcane way. I've got 30 or 40 or 50 goddamn novels out of print that are never coming back. Has anybody talked about Shadrach in the Furnace, a stochastic man recently? Dish killed himself. I don't, want, uh, I don't think that Dish killed himself because he had, because his novels were out of print, but it didn't help. <laughs> I mean, where are the where are those novels and those writers today? But where is the genre today? Is what I'm asking. There well, is no uh, mainstream anymore. There are novels nice from thing. all the other I writers like of different genres at that time. We're not reading them now. Why? Because there's new novels coming out, and we're reading them. No, but. Yeah. The Invisible Man, uh, the Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison is in the canon. There is a canon. Catcher in the Rye is in the canon. I, I can rattle them off, all the king's men. What's major science fiction now? If you walk in, into a, a walk into a Barnes and Noble or whatever, whatever is local, can you get more than human? Yes. Demolish now. I'm, I'm, I'm human. You can get left hand of darkness. You can get oh, canical for leaving. You can get canical for leaving. Yeah. yeah. You have a hard time finding a mechanical. No, no, no. It's in front of you. Yes, you had something. Get doomed. Yes, I was. One, I, I was just thinking that uh, the period that uh, Mr. Rawls work says uh, was an ending actually strikes me as being the beginning of uh, one of the most exciting 
uh, periods in the development of science fiction. I'm thinking particularly of, uh, of, of writers like Susie Chernus and uh, John Varley. John Varley and the, the, the a, a whole new uh, world had been opened up in terms of uh, gender consideration. Well, the, the excitement of that time gets overshadowed by the Star Wars and the Star Trek conventions and all that, but it was still a very exciting time to be reading, and I just want to mark that. Where does Terry Carr fit in this? Stan, you started with Terry Carr was your, mm. your car, right? Yeah, Terry was a beautiful guy and uh, with wonderful taste and edited the Ace specials in the 60s and in the 80s. And uh, there's no more... A sweeter soul that has ever been in the science fiction scene, and he did a lot for the field. I think the story is too big to to tell in in individual things like this. There was so much going on at once. Uh, the Star Wars Star Trek thing was bad because before that, in the fifties, there were a mid list of science fiction writers that could make a a living writing science fiction novels. Because when the kids went down to buy science fiction books. They would buy books that, by writers they didn't know and didn't remember the names of, and that would keep, uh, there were enough of them to keep people's careers alive. But then when they would just buy the Star Trek and Star Wars books, uh, an entire mini-industry crashed and burned. So that happened. But on the other hand, there, the feminist science fiction really came into the fore in the 70s and in the, in the early 80s, and Floating Worlds was a gigantic success uh, that Cecilia published in 76. And because she came out of historical fiction and was reviewed in the New York Times, everybody was saying, you know, it was like an early Michael Chabon-type moment where people said, well, I mean, science fiction writers aren't very good, but if a good writer comes in and does it from the outside, the genre itself is capable of anything. And this was, this was one of the responses to yeah, it. Definitely. So it's a complicated story, and it includes uh, good and and bad, uh, serious defeats like the like the end of the science fiction midlist, and and uh, and great novels popping out, you know, all along the way. I still think you can tell a generation, a decade to decade story for science fiction that makes remarkably good sense, considering how short it is. But you can you can follow that story, but it's. It's like following a river, and it's by no means a, you know, a, a downhill from any one moment, and neither is it a rise to increasing glory. There are high points, and then, you know, it's like taking some damn roller coaster ride, like mm. history at large. Mm. Yeah. My my, I think it's all right. My feeling of the way publishing works is like a gigantic uh, letter E with lots of um, from any genre. You can suddenly pop up onto the bestseller list, and once you've done that, the publishers would like to advertise you to everybody to help get you more readers. So there are all the genres, and they have their own individual readers. There's mystery readers, fantasy readers, science fiction readers, romance readers, and, you know, cookbooks. And any one of those could become a bestseller. 
a big bestseller. And at that point, they do not want to label you by your genre because it might keep people that would enjoy your book and buy your book and, and, and maybe enjoy it from buying it. So you, it's a good sign when they're suddenly just calling you fiction. Maybe unless you're a cookbook, but. Well, I, I got a lot of posts from uh, the, the publisher about Neil Gaiman's book Graveyard, uh, Graveyard going to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I was like, yeah. we're gonna be inundated with copies of this book by other authors, and they're all trying to capitalize on the success. But not one of them mentioned him as uh, I didn't even see any of them use the term speculative fiction. Well. But uh, like But Neil Stevenson, I mean his most recent book was number 1 in the New York Times bestseller list for at least one week and maybe two and that you cannot disguise. This is people on another planet with aliens and it's just it's a straight flat out Yes, well, it just so happens <laughs> it's all right. Because it's a good sign. It's a good thing for the field at large. What it shows is that um, science fiction can still be written and be popular. Um, it, I fear the rise of fantasy versus science fiction because I actually feel there's a difference between those two, and I'm a science fiction patriot, and I'm not at all confident that uh, fantasy is a good thing. Although individual masterpieces can be written in the form, when all of the young kids go to fantasy, it seems to me they're looking backwards. And when all the young kids don't want to read science fiction, it seems to me to indicate a fear of the future, that nothing in the future looks good. And also, if you read a fantasy novel, everybody's outdoors all the time. They're riding horses. They can identify the good guys from the bad guys, and they can whack the bad guys and chop their heads off. This is all very comforting. And yet, it's not really the world that we're in. And whereas science fiction, it seems to me, is the world that we're in. So I see problems in the readership, but I think it's such a big field of possibilities that there's there's very few conclusions that can be drawn. Your well, description of fantasy just sounded like Cecilia's description of yeah. historical fiction. No. People love it for that reason, too. People, uh, you know, these kids are doing nothing but living in a boxes to the point where when they have their day off, instead of going outside, they still do the things that they did when they're in school. Our screenagers are uh, in a structure of feeling and, a, and in a cultural style that is, is turning them into like 1950s brains in bottles. They use nothing but their brains and their fingertips. <laughs> and even when they have their free day, they only use their brains and their fingertips. I'm watching this myself as a parent going out of my mind. And then when they're reading, what are they reading? Well, I'm outdoors on my horse with Cecilia, and i am maybe got a sword in my hand, and I'm going to chop some heads up. They want that animal life that all her culture is not giving them. So fantasy for them now is wish fulfillment and a, a return to their animality. That's why I think they love it so much. See, to me, there's a, there is a, a lot of, you can, there's a lot of examples, certainly, of good science fiction written since the 50s or since the 60s, but I tend to agree with, the, what I see in what Barry's saying and what I felt in my own life as a science fiction writer, I got to feel pretty late in the late 70s and it seemed to me like a lot of the writers that uh, were around me and I'd, I'd leave you out of this Stan uh, somewhat but you know I think of um, uh, you know like Swanwick or, or Lucius uh, or it seems like a lot of people that what you're what you had to work with was working ironic changes on stuff that had already been done that was already in the field 
there was not the the frontier was closed it was like uh it was 1890 you know and there wasn't any new territory so all you could and i think that is a had an enormously uh it made the literature more uh complex and interesting in many cases but it also took a lot away from it uh there wasn't any new territory to to open up well that's one one point and another is a point i have been making <clears throat> For many years, uh, my hobby horse has been, and it's in my uh, Locus interview, uh, Amelia, in 2001, I made this point to Charlie Brown at great length. When I picked up the January 52 Galaxy magazine, which had the Demolished Man, uh, wasn't January 52, it, it was March of 52. It was the first issue of Galaxy I ever bought. We had the third installment of Demolished Man and Catch That Martian by Damon Knight and the Year of the Jackpot by Heinlein. I had very little reading background in SF at that time. I fell right into it. I had almost no problem in assimilating this. I could not imagine that the 13-year-old equivalent of me in 2001 could take an issue of Isaac Asimov's magazine off the, uh, off the stands and know what the hell was going on. <laughs> the field by 2001 had become so yeah. arcane and self-referential that unless you had a powerful reading knowledge and background, of, uh, uh, you, you could not get into this. Mm -hmm. and that, uh, you could measure the, the progression or devolution of science fiction over 50 years in terms of how arcane it became after the frontier was closed. Mm -hmm. Because once the frontier was closed, all you could do was, was have variations upon variations. And you, you almost needed to know what the variation was a variation of <laughs> in order to identify with it. Mm -hmm. And as you want... I, I said about Dozois and Isaac Asimov's magazine for 20 years, the better the magazine got, the worse it sold. He took that magazine over in 1985 with a circulation of, at that time of about 75,000. When he left in 1994, it was at about 22,000. It, it's about 16 now. Sheila Williams is a, is a decent editor doing, doing what, uh, what Gardner was doing and, and it's, it's fallen under her. The same is, is happening. It's very difficult for a newcomer, an, a non-sophisticate, to relate to science fiction itself anymore. We'll take two more comments. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy and then somebody with something interesting to say. <laughs> I think it might be an unfair comparison to point to your galaxy, the, the pulps of the 50s, and then point to Asimov's, because that's not where 13-year-olds get their science fiction. I, that, that, I, I was refuted that way very satisfactorily, and uh, I think at the ReaderCon, someone said, our 13-year-olds our are not you, you as a 13-year-old. I mean, these, these kids are much more sophisticated, I was told. Than, than I ever could have been in 1952. Good point. I'm sure they are more sophisticated, but they don't. They don't know what the story, what the, what the right. the story in Asimov they are reading. They don't know that Nancy Cress is doing Wilmar Shiraz, <laughs> you know, and and, and uh, 50 years later, they right. don't have that touchstone. Right. But they can pick. Or the James Patrick Kelly that that the uh, the cold equations or Rogue Moon are being done by Dame Patrick Kelly in, in Think, uh, Think Like a 
what's the not yeah. think like a think like a dinosaur, which which is a play on on Rogue Moon. I know that. I read Rogue Moon. I was there. I was there at the creation. I know Rogue Moon. I know the the cold equations. Most readers of that story, which won a Hugo, have no idea what he was playing. But they're picking up the YA novels that are rife with science fiction that don't need that that lay, those layers or stratas. That it does not help the uh, the 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 Bissons and uh, and the Mausbergs of today. True. <laughs> That's the YA uh, category. There are entry points for 13-year-olds today. Yeah. But the, the YA category is thriving now because of Rowling, not because of me. Right. All right. Yeah. And that's her audience. Mm -hmm. just, just, this is not an interesting part. Just throwing in, you could read uh, The Demolished Man without, without reading Heisman's either. <laughs> but the Heisman's is very demolished man, the same way Omar Shiraz is in Nancy Craig. Yeah. I take your point, but the, the demolished man, Nancy Cress is a wonderful writer. Bester was uh, was one of the great writers of the century. So, you, it is, it, demolished man gets you in a way that beggars in Spain does not, in my opinion. Bria, um, I just wanted to. I don't know if I'm the last question or not, but uh, I'm sorry, it has them up. I just wanted to take the opportunity. Um, not to date you, the books, or myself, but I think I was about 1976. That's about when I wrote the first book. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a school librarian introduced me to your books. I've read them faithfully ever since. I would say um, historical fiction being one of my favorite, favorite genres because to my mind, and I ended up being a history major in college, I also saw history as a form of science fiction. And it was a trip to the path that I could take by picking up, for instance, any one of your books. And I found it just as engaging as dreaming about what the future might hold. And it, I'm, I'm more than delighted to be able to tell you this in person, how very much pleasure your books have given I'm more than delighted to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to say that as this discussion has gone on, I believe more and more what they're saying because I'm shut out of it. I'm not part of this world. All I am is a writer. And all I want to do is write. And I remember Kepler schlepping his books from book fair to book fair to book fair to sell them. I'm just, I'm being paid to lie. I'm being paid to do what I would do anyway. And that's all I want to do. And I don't care what the pre uh, precedents are and I don't care what comes after. I just care about getting my book out. So then that, I'm sorry if that makes me non canonical but still no yes, exactly yes yes <laughs> to everyone I've mentioned or talked to about um, your being part of this series floating worlds always has come up so we, we do hold a very we do well we thank you very much very I, I'm, I'm very I very I appreciate all of my readers of whom I can probably have met all of them I, you know. <laughs> but I do appreciate I love to write and for me, the writing is the thing. The book is the process of making the book is the thing, not the book. But uh, I'm not part of this. I can't, you know, run titles past the way these guys can. And maybe that's what their problem is: is that science fiction, <laughs> science fiction has steadily whirlpooled down deeper and deeper and deeper and tighter and tighter and tighter until you finally just have a little tiny knot in the middle. 
But if, if good writing is always, people are always going to look for good writing. People are always going to look for books that they like, that they enjoy, that they can inhabit, and uh, that give them a sense of a world beyond themselves. And it doesn't matter what the genre is. Like I said before, there's no mainstream anymore. There's just books. And Well, I'm like Rena. I ran into Cecilia's novels when I was in high school, and, it, and it was, this was, uh, and, and I am... I am not much younger than Cecilia, but she started writing as a teenager, and I ran into Rakossi in the in the library, and these were beautiful books as objects, tall and skinny and with great covers, medieval Athenaeum. covers. Athenaeum. Yeah. Yeah, Athenaeum, and, and I read mm -hmm. the, to the end of the book, and at the end of this book, suddenly all the characters that I had gotten to know and love were overrun by the Turks and all killed in the last page. I couldn't believe my eyes. I said, that can't happen. That's never happened before to me, and I had read 10,000 books at that point, and I never had that happen before. Everybody so, died. So I read all the rest of Cecilia's books I have ever since, and it's been a great joy in my reading life. But I think science fiction has got a different problem than us knowing too much about our own history. The world itself is in, in a strange state where um, uh, you read Jack Williamson's autobiography, and he says, you know, I read science fiction because I was on a hard scrabble farm in North, North, New Mexico, and this was the future, and the future was going to be utopian. Kids today, they look at the future. They're not seeing utopia. They can't believe in space. We're not going to go out there and have a galactic Asimovian foundation-like empire. No one can believe it. It's physically impossible. So all that has been put aside as a dream of the 40s, dream of the 30s. And now you can't write that same stuff. So we've got a different set of problems. But, you know, there's still going to be a future. There's still interesting things to say. And there's still, you know, good books to write. So. Oh, yes. Barry, do you have a, Oh, cat. Well, the meat of science fiction, though, has changed because it, space is not the ultimate goal. It's now technology that's really driving a lot of science fiction. I think of, like, Woody Rooker's yeah. Singular and, and, and those types of books that are taking us into computers and nanotechnology and the different technologies that are emerging, which are so vastly different than the search in space where, you know, I, I think there's still room for that, but technology has so taken over. I mean, computers through the 80s have completely revolutionized how we live. Yeah, but is there, if you're a young reader, if you're 14 years old and you run, are you and you think about the future, do you think of it as a realm of possibility where you're going to become greater than you were or anything could happen? Or do you think of it as a kind of a, a shrinking realm of possibility where you're getting downsized and where you're, the future is scary? So, well, I must it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they might have a more vigorous science fiction in the next 10 years. Yeah. Well, I've taken a, a particular pride introducing my godchildren uh, to science fiction uh, and subverting them and with their mother's uh, 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 total approval. And uh, I give them books or, or show them movies and, uh, well, the city of Ember coming up now, it's like, oh, people underground, you know, after an apocalypse. Oh, it's like this story and that story, etc. They may not know the entire uh, history of science fiction, but uh, they understand the tropes, you know, right. and uh, uh, galactic empires I've shown them, and uh, you know, dystopias, and uh, and uh, the cyberpunk, uh, and the steampunk, and I've shown them all stuff. They may not know all the names and the histories and live that, but they're getting it. They really are. And 
they're 12 and 13, and God bless them, and they're eating it up. Hmm. So Good. 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 Uh, let's leave it at that. We next week. Let me say a couple mm -hmm. words. Next month, what's our, what's our date? Uh, uh, well, we have two events left for the end of the year. Um, part of our deal with Variety because they um, really swing into action with the Academy Awards screenings, and they're, they're they're booking like six and seven films a day in here. Wow. So we will have our last two events. October twenty fifth, we'll have the movie, the uh, Haunting, and Don't Look Now. Um, and then November 15th, our last author's event for the year will be Ellen Clage's Jeff Ryman and a special guest who's, who will be here from Canada. And we're very excited to have all three of them. Canada? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah, Isn't okay. Jeff Ryman Canadian? So, yeah. And we will start up again with the author events <laughs> in January and then with the movie events in, in March. And all of that info will be on the website. Uh, SFNSF.org. Please sign the uh, mailing list, yes. and I can't tell you what a treat this evening has been with Cecilia, with Stan, and with Barry Malsberg, who's on the West Coast with us today. So thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.